You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Matt and Chris. Hello, Bob. Uh, uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Matthew Brown and Christopher Cavanaugh. And I'll let you say a little bit more about yourselves in just a second. Uh, let me say right now that we are going to talk about secular gurus, what they are, why there seem to be so many of them, whether we should find this abundance alarming. Uh, and for all these questions and more, I turn to you because you are hosts of a podcast called Decoding the Gurus, which I've become something of a fan of. And, um, so, uh, why don't we, at this point, let you both tell us why you feel personally qualified to opine on, on gurus. What, what is it about your, your credentials and or day jobs that, uh, that, that give you this, this power? Uh, you're, you're the older, wiser senior member of the team. Why don't you go first and share okay. your wisdom? <laughs> let me, okay, let me so. say for people just listening, the Australian accent will be Matt, Matt Brown. The, yeah. Kind of Irish accent, possibly with a little Japanese thrown in. I'm not sure. You're in, Chris is in Japan, but, but it's, um, uh, is, is, uh, Chris, yeah, let's get to the important stuff first. Is there something a little unusual about your Irish accent? Many things, but the, probably the, the most notable is it's Northern Irish. Like I, I grew up in Belfast. So primarily it's a Belfast accent, but it's, but it has, yeah, but it has been remarked by people in Northern Ireland that have some strange qualities. I mean, I mean, they're classified as having a very broad Belfast accent, like a West Belfast accent, or mm -hmm. having an accent which is <laughs> hard to identify as Northern Irish. And and then because I have lived in Japan for quite a long time and uh, been around non-native English speakers. You know, even including actually living in London where people didn't find Northern Irish accent easy to understand. My accent is now probably a weird amalgamation, but, but the Belfast pronunciation is the primary is, feature. Is the essence of it. Okay. So that is Chris. Now we turn to the Australian accent, Matt, and, and Chris apparently wants you to go first, Matt, in talking about it. I'll go first as the, as the senior partner in this. Uh, yeah, so I'm a professor in psychology at Central Queensland University. And, uh, yeah, I've been a, you know, researcher and academic for like 20 years now. Um, started off in artificial intelligence, but, um, moved into statistics and stuff. And, um, done a lot of general kind of social psychological research on addiction, but also on um, stuff like religiosity, uh, conspiracy theories, and, um, you know, what we might call non-evidence-based beliefs, uh, including anti-vax um, and other types of things. So, yeah, that's my background. Okay. Chris? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm... I'm also an academic um, and associate professor at a university called Rikyo in Tokyo. And I have a joint position at Oxford University as a researcher. Um, and my field is not that far off, Matt, I, I, but I kind of work in the 
the hinterlands between cognitive anthropology, the more quantitative side of anthropology, and uh, psychology, social and experimental psychology. So I teach in a, a psychology department in Japan, and I'm employed in the anthropology department in Oxford. And my research in academic sense focuses around uh, like religion and beliefs and rituals, uh, the kind of cognitive psychology of ritual mainly. So I work primarily in a field called the cognitive science of religion, which mm-hmm. you might be familiar with, Bob. And, and then, uh, but I also work on group psychology and the formation of group identities and communities. So that sort of overlaps with my interest in conspiracy theorists and uh, pseudoscience communities. But that has really been a long-standing interest since the beginnings of my interest in academia. So that's been running parallel, and I I tried to make them intersect, but it's this focus on gurus is probably uh, a more recent development. Okay. So... um Let's talk about a little bit about what you mean by secular gurus. And, and let me say, I encourage you both to just dive in whenever you want. I won't direct questions at either of you. You seem to know each other well enough that y- your relationship will survive any, any like, you know, alpha well. competition. That, 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 uh, <laughs> yeah, we know who's Batman and who's Robin in this relationship. We don't need to get into I, it. I, we'll let people figure that out. And then at the end, you can tell them the correct, the correct answer. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I, 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 people, I'm sure, would like to know what is a secular guru. It, it's kind of clear, given your backgrounds, why you would be interested in regular gurus, right? I mean, classic gurus, spiritual gurus, religious gurus would seem right up your alley, but that's not what your podcast is about. Um, yeah. you, you, each episode, uh, you, uh, well, your n- non-special episodes, you have these special episodes where you kind of, uh, approach the subject from maybe a slightly different angle, but in the classic version of your podcast, you will take on one of these secular gurus and you do something that I think, uh, has value in its own right, independent of the, the guru thing and, and, and which I would like to see more of, which is you, 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 you take, uh, an actual recording uh, often a podcast featuring this guru, and you kind of take it apart. You do a little bit of a play-by-play. You actually play clips from it and comment on them. And I think that should become a genre in its own right, you know, like like podcasts that review podcasts in, in various realms, gurus aside. Yeah. And that's that's one thing I enjoy about it. But but let me um tell people, give people the sequence of, uh should I say, Subjects or targets? Anyway, the, the the sequence of people you uh, commented on. The first episode was about Brett and Eric Weinstein. I assume most people know them. They are associated with the so-called intellectual dark web. Uh, after after that, it was James Lindsay, Jordan Peterson, another. You know, these are these are all kinds of IDW-ish, anti-wokeish people. And at that point, I might have thought. That's what you're going to do. Uh, you went on to do some people on the left, Rutger Bregman, uh, ContraPoints, uh, Ibram X. Kendi. But I have to ask, given the first few, was, was the original inspiration for this, like, getting annoyed by people in the intellectual dark web or 
or anti wokeism or what? How, how did this? How did this whole thing get off the ground? I'm trying to remember, Chris. How did we? What made us stop doing this? Yeah, the I think the original motivation was like, and maybe this will be might be a little bit meandering, Bob, but it might address like a bunch of those points. Is that uh, you know, like most people online, we are involved in the culture war uh, by by choice or by simply existing online, and there's various aspects of that which are annoying and grating. But one of the things was the emergence of figures uh, who who seemed to occupy the kind of space that you would tr- traditionally associate with with guru figures um, that, and the same kinds of level devotion, right? Like Jordan Peterson is a good example. Not just somebody, not just a public intellectual, but somebody inspiring like genuine emotional commitment from fans. But... Uh, the what they were pushing tended to be not really and Jordan Peterson's sort of an exception because he does include religious elements into mm-hmm. what he promotes, but the majority of uh, the figures were not focused on a religious uh, component to it, and in some respects, the political messages, even though they're they're definitely there, they're often kind of subsumed as well those are just secondary features from their you know, their scientific or approach or that kind of thing. And I think that Matt and I, we were noticing these recurrent features in a lot of the, the figures in the culture war. And we started talking about writing a paper to like, you know, because we're academics. So we, we made a shared Google doc where we noted down features and started sketching out the skeleton of a paper to write together. And then we were talking about, well, the, it would be good to catalog examples of this. And, and we are discussing these things anyway. So maybe we should start thinking about, you know, recording something to release where we can. So the, the podcast idea came out of the initial collaboration on a paper which well, is basically procrastination. Yeah, that's right. It was yeah. basically procrastination. So, <laughs> to, to well, well, wait, to wait. wait. In, in what sense now? You were working on a paper related to this and you said, wait, well, a yeah. podcast would be easier than writing an actual paper or what? No. Yeah, yeah. Kind, I, well, kind of. <laughs> I, I think we, we were having discussions about the people that we were covering and, you know, the features that we were identifying on Skype and they were quite enjoyable. And then... I was on Twitter quite often doing breakdowns, like similar, you know, kind of tweet thread breakdowns of podcasts uh, mm-hmm. from the figures that I'd read. So it's, uh, I'd been considering making some content that, you know, don't know podcasts or articles or whatnot. But after talking with Matt, I got the idea that it would be like that we could try and make a podcast about breaking down the content that we're discussing. Anyway, and then it kind of took a life of its own as we went on. And it's uh, now the paper is kind of in the background, but still hoping to be finished. <laughs> We're going to get around to it. Yeah, like once we started cataloging them, we tried to identify what the common themes were. What, what were the, And when we sat down to do that and we we're just sort of brainstorming and building up a kind of rough document, we 
began to realize there were these same kind of themes, which, which we could identify in a whole bunch of these different um, guru types. And it definitely had resonances with stuff that we'd studied before in terms of this sort of cult like aspects uh, in terms of conspiracy theories um, in terms of, like there's a whole academic um, subfield um, of bullshitology, basically, which is to understand uh, bullshit and the way that people can communicate while appearing to be saying something truthy while actually saying very little or something quite mundane. Um, and also, of course, these um, sort of anti-establishment, paranoid kind of um, narratives and um you know or warning of a of a coming apocalypse of some mm-hmm. t- terrible events that um that are going to transpire so we started spotting essentially the same themes across these multiple gurus they had these sort of often self-help or religious or spiritual aspects to them but as chris said with the exception of jordan peterson most of them really are, are nominally totally secular yeah right yeah now so not all the things you mentioned would apply to all the people you've focused on right like like the the conspiracy not all these people are are into conspiracy theories probably and not all of them envision an apocalypse i mean it seems to me that one thing that well it's almost bound to be true of them in a way but that they have a fan base that includes at least to some extent some what you might call irrational attachment uh you know in other words people being um persuaded by something other than pure reason does that make sense you know i hesitate to even suggest that that could be a distinction because i think you know given the nature of human belief there's usually some of that right i I mean when people become a fan of anyone any columnist or whatever they start attributing some authority to them that can give the person the power to persuade at least some of their fans without really making rock solid arguments, right? I mean, that's just, that's just life in the discourse business to some extent. You, you, yeah. Is that right? Well, what, I think what we the try point to do is, you, hmm. oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead, Mark. Go on, Chris. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> all right. All right. Eat I may before. have to arbitrate if, if this humility thing gets <laughs> out of control. I may have to designate speakers, but go ahead. Well, so I think the point that you made about, you know, the traits that we identify existing on the spectrum is exactly true. And I would also add that it's it's more a family resemblance kind of category, right? That we, it isn't that everybody that we cover will have all of the features, but just that these features are recurrent. And if you're high in all of the uh, points that we identify, the chances that you're a guru are like very, very high. But in that same respect, there are always aspects um, to the features that we focus on and also just to opining in a public setting where there, like, that you will build the following that people will, you know, who like what you say will be more positively disposed to you. But there's a spectrum of these mm-hmm. things. And the distinction, so the kind of distinction between a, a guru and somebody who's a public intellectual is often the degree to which they uh, encourage that level of attachment or the extent to which they present their ideas as revolutionary and so on. So I, the 
one other point I would make is that it, something which I think distinguishes us from some of the other people that discuss these things is that you asked, you know, is it because we wanted to respond to anti-woke stuff? And it definitely isn't that because a lot of the criticisms that people might have of like the, the kind of woke movement or whatever you want to call it, I, I see validity to those. And, and, and like in vice versa, there's validity to criticisms that people make of, you know, the growth of the popular right or that kind of thing. But I, so the objection that I have is not usually based on that it's a ideological or kind of political disagreement with that we shouldn't criticize people who are, you know, too woke or that we, that kind of thing. It's not, it's not based on a political foundation, basically. Matt, sorry. Yeah. I mean, the other little point of clarification there, Bob, is that we, you know, not everyone we cover is like a bad guru, right? So we, 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 we'd go mad if, if, if everyone we covered was kind of terrible, if you like. So it's, and it's fun to have these points of contrast as well. So, and, um, and also to be surprised. So, um, we, we've covered some of our own personal kind of gurus. Like I chose Carl Sagan and, mm-hmm. and Chris chose a, a guy that nobody's heard of, Anthony DeMillo. And, <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, we're looking forward to covering people kind of cold, coming at them a little and, and mm-hmm. not, no, and having really no idea beforehand what, what our opinion is going to be. And yeah, as Chris said, we're, what we really try to do is focus on the, the structure and form of what they're doing, uh, rather than sort of agreeing or disagreeing with them personally about whatever it is they're arguing for. So for instance, Ibrahim X. Kendi is, is obviously very well known for pushing his particular theories about you know, um, critical race theory and so on. But really our focus was on, and anti-racism rather, um, but really our focus was on, was he expressing himself clearly? Was he doing these sort of rhetorical slights of hand? Um, and, you know, was what he was saying logically coherent rather than sort of going where either for or against his particular brand of anti-racism, just as an example. Right. I, I would say it's pretty much always the case, maybe with the exception of your personal gurus like uh, Carl Sagan, but uh, uh, you only did one of those each. It seems to be always the case. You you find something that you believe is, if not flat out bullshit, you know, some kind of logical error uh, or sometimes just a flat out manipulative uh, rhetorical technique. Um, I, uh, so, and, and that's, you know, when I said, I think this, this genre needs to, um, become broader, you know, uh, that I would like to see all kinds of, uh, podcast reviews of podcasts. I think it would just be he- healthy if people were held accountable. And, uh, you know, uh, when, if somebody thinks that somebody says something on a, on a podcast, it's bullshit. Uh, there'd be a place where that claim is made. And, 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 and there's something good about the audio, about, about hearing it. And then hearing you talk about it, it's it's just you know the, there's something um, effective about staying within the medium um, that you're uh, talking about. So yeah. let, me, let me yeah go ahead. I I was just going to say I think the one issue is though that there can be like what you're 
talking about, Bob, I think does exist, right? Especially on YouTube, people reacting to reactions uh-huh. of reactions, right? And one issue with it is that it becomes a, you know, self-indulgent hall of mirrors or kind of caught right. up in these little feuds and, and group debates that, you know, anybody yeah. outside of the online environment has very little interest in. So that can happen. Uh, but right. the the point that you, I think, are getting at more broadly about that people who do these, like, say, free R podcasts, right? Like Joe Rogan and Brett Weinstein recently did a free R podcast. Now, the there was a lot said in that that was shocking, like shockingly bad. But the majority of people, even their critics, are not going to sit and listen to a three-hour mm-hmm. discussion between them and rebut the the points because it's massively time-consuming and it's also infuriating if you are finding the things that they're saying annoying, right? So that's something which Matt and I do regularly. Yeah. Which, which I actually think is valuable because then you, if you, for our audience who I actually a fair amount of them were or at, like, at least previously fans of the Weinsteins, but the, I think it is good for people, like you say, to be exposed to hear people that they, they don't, they don't actually hear. They just have a, you know, a caricature mm-hmm. in their mind. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's accurate, but when you actually hear the way that they rhetorically set things up, you can often see, I think, how they make it appeal to their audience and why people might spend three hours to listen to Joe Rogan and uh, the Heller and Brett discuss, Mm -hmm. you know, how innovative that they all are. Um, So, yeah. yeah. The, the, um, I think you're right that, you know, you're right. The genre of, 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 of criticism of intramedium criticism definitely exists on YouTube. The trouble is that the YouTube algorithm incentivizes you to just do this trash talk or at least depict the thing that way. You know, it incentivizes you to put a, a, a screen shot on it that says, you know, uh, you know, James Lindsay demolishes Ibram X Kendi, right? I mean, and that's clickbait and that gets going. And so that's. So yeah, what I'm actually advocating is something a little more reflective and, and considered and less uh, sensationalistic than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, the vast majority of this kind of material is done by haters, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that is just, in my opinion, really just layering rhetoric on top of rhetoric. So, I mean, when when God knows we're not perfect, especially Chris, but um, <laughs> we we try <laughs> we try not to we try not to do that, and we we do try to make a point of, especially even when they are pretty bad overall, we try to we try to identify at least something, at least some things that they do all right on and are fine with, just as a kind of discipline apart from anything else, because if we can't see. I think it's a good heuristic that most people, even gurus, are not entirely bad. I I agree. Even gurus are not entirely <laughs> bad. Now, so maybe we should uh, – uh, well, let me ask one more general question, and then let's talk about some of the gurus. But the general question is, um, you know, uh, uh, Daniel Dresner, this foreign policy kind of uh, scholar and blogger, wrote a book about – uh, in which he made a distinction between public intellectuals and thought leaders. 
And he clearly thought like public intellectuals were good. Thought leaders were un- an unfortunate kind of product of our times. They were the ones who do superficial TED talks or whatever. I forget the exact definition, but, um, a, I'm, I'm wondering if you want to talk about whether this secular guru thing maps on, you think maps on to the thought leader concept, you can. But my more, my more fundamental question is, do you think, as Dan thinks about thought leaders, that secular gurus are kind of a product of our time? I mean, I'm sure you can go back and find examples in past times, but is there like a, a proliferation of them, um, and is there, uh, you know, some of them talk about the crisis of authority, right? And 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 how nobody knows who to believe, and that's a problem, and so you should believe them. But I mean, it, uh, is there a real crisis of authority that they are that their proliferation reflects? Is there a proliferation of them, or or like is this just a, a kind of a new label uh, for something that's always been with us in abundance, or what? So uh, I think that there's it's a very academic answer, but there's kind of elements of both. There's the element of like old wine in new bottles. Like if you're familiar with conspiracy theories or anti-vaccine communities or whatever, you can see the rhetoric, like the the kind of DNA from the old, uh, well well known uh, communities and advocates reflected in the 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 new gurus or the rhetoric that they're offering so there's there's lots of kind of connective tissue to older conspiracy theories and also including to references like the you know the john birch society or uh uh flip going out of my head the progenitor of alex jones um i forget his name the guy who wrote the behold the pale horse but you when you listen to them you can see a lot of the same kind of, uh, you know, a lot of the same kind of themes, a lot of the same kind of manipulative techniques. But the thing which is, I think, different and which I do think it reflects on something new is partly to do with the online ecosystems that now exist, social media, and the ability to access uh, this kind of thought, whereas before... To some extent, you had to seek it out and you had to, uh, you know, be motivated to, to kind of find those communities and get those books. Now, you know, to find a three hour discussion of ivermectin, it's just a click away. And even if you don't want to see it, you probably will if you're on Twitter. So that's different. But also, I think there has been with the, you know, it's a very broad trend about decline of neoliberal consensus or whatever way you want to put it. The, and, and the woke movement, I think, is an outgrowth of that as well, that there is a crisis of meaning or epistemology and people are searching for answers and ideologies and, uh, and there's plenty of people willing to give it that situation has has come about like lots of times and lots of cycles but i think we're just in a a new one that's particularly potent and and is reflected in political developments with the rise of populism and all of that kind of thing so yeah i think epistemic crisis and the uh the rise of the new social media environments is 
is helping these people to grow and reach massive audiences. That's kind of the worrying aspect of it. Matt, are you worried? You're, you're nodding your head. I, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, is I, I it worrying? Worried. Because you, I mean, you've you've taken pains to say they're, they're not all bad. There there are, uh, you know, and and your assessments, and of course, I'm sure you admit you you have your ideological perspective. Um, I suspect uh, you've been accused of evincing it in the course of um, your assessments of these people. It, it seems to me you may be a little uh, quicker to get to the criticisms with some people on the right than you spent. You spent a fair amount of time saying nice things about I- Ibram X. Kendi uh, before you got to criticisms. Not so much with Scott Adams. Uh, not so much with the Weinstein's. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so. So the, 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 there's there's that that you can um, uh, comment on if you want, but 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 the background question is: so you do you do think there's an actually alarming trend here? Uh, the the uh, in response to, I mean, I guess I would see the crisis of authority as having two potential sources. One, there's the famous, well, there's the famous decline of religious authority, right? Uh, uh, or at least traditional religious authority, you know, and as reflected in percentage of people who go to church and things like that. And then there is something that I think is largely a product of uh, changes in the technology of media, uh, which is just that there are not, there are no longer three TV networks in America. And it, it is no longer a kind of monopoly on authority uh, at, at the top. And, uh, and so you see these, all these like, you know, flowers and or weeds, depending on your perspective, just kind of springing up to fill the void. But that's a long-winded way uh, of asking like, you, you do, you do think there's a little, something a little unsettling going on here? Yeah, I definitely agree with Chris that, um, although in some ways it's a continual, you know, it's the same, same, the same things have happened before with, snake oil salesmen of various kinds and, um, you know, barefooted preachers in the street sort of thing. And, um, but it is the, just simply the technology, um, has created, um, the, the new opportunities. And I guess also, as Chris said, that cultural moment with this crisis and epistemology and confidence in neoliberal institutions. And you're, you're seeing that both on the left. And the right. So, and, and in the, in some weird spheres, you see this sort of horseshoeing kind of things mm-hmm. happening as well. Say Russell Brand, for instance, it's, it's, it's quite mm-hmm. surreal. Um, I'll, look, I'm going to defend our relatively positive review of Abraham X. Kendi because I knew very little about him before we covered him. And my assumption, uh, except for what people said about him on Twitter. And from what I knew from that, which is probably what most people know, I thought we were going to totally pan him. Like that mm-hmm. was my expectation, and in terms of my just sort of general kind of worldview in Australia, we don't have the same kind of racial angst generally. I would say as is currently going on in America, so I sort of raise an eyebrow at all of it. So that, that's where I was coming from. Um, so I sort of reject a little bit that we're sort of just sort of more, you know, ideologically sympathetic to Kendi and therefore gave him an easy ride. We're actually quite surprised how you know his his arguments were were clear and logical and presented in quite an academic kind of way you can definitely disagree with the premises and the assumptions that underlie it and therefore say that the entire thing is flawed and so but in in a way 
the, in that case, your problem is with the sort of critical theory arm of academia and the and the kind of like an, it's not with him personally. It's more with the, the the entire sort of intellectual substructure on which he bases his work on. But that's not our focus with gurus. Yeah, it's 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 very much it, it, we're not about going so deep. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris? One thing, Bob, I'd add is that I, you know, looking back at history of conspiracy theories and uh, like gurus and whatnot. I'm 100% certain that in 100 years' time, after we're all dead, the or robot versions of us are still around, but there there will be other people sitting here talking about the new crop of, uh, you know, robot gurus or whatever they are, probably just people like us, um, complaining about the same kind of issues. And, uh, you know, every time I read a history book about that kind of thing, I, I'm amazed at how many things are similar and they're just you know with different technologies Mm -hmm. and that kind of limitation but the i think that with matt and i because we're academics and that's our background that we have a bit of a bias towards academic type stuff and Mm -hmm. in particular we're both interested in the way that people approach topics uh scientifically right or presented as scientific and the way that they tell people about these good heuristics to you know to find good information or to examine topics and as a result of that like someone like candy to me they've got fairly crazy definitions of the terms and that's what their whole framework rests on but Somebody academics uh, meeting somebody that has like a strange theory that relies on their bespoke definitions is something that happens every day. And you just kind of be like, okay, so you've got a theory that I don't buy into, but it rests on these definitions, which I just don't think apply. So it's not that upsetting. On the other hand, when you have gurus who are saying that like, this is what science is, I'm teaching you you know, I'm giving the audience what real science is about and what they're giving their audience is kind of heuristics that will lead them towards pseudoscience or towards rank partisanship. Like mm-hmm. I have more concern for that, but I I don't know if it's concerned that like, you know, the sky is falling and everyone's going to fall into it or more that it's just teaching a lot of people who are interested in these topics and could be coming across better material like bad habits of thinking that are going to, you know, that have impacts like with, with uh, vaccine hesitancy and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it'll, I, I don't think it's particularly a hundred percent unique, but it's, it's still concerning as it will be in the future. Yeah. I, I think if we get triggered by anything, it's the uh, gurus who really work hard to undermine people's confidence in other mm-hmm sort of conventional sources of knowledge, you know, institutions, whether it's scientists, whether it's medical practitioners, often, you know, I, I kind of parent, um, and it, it plays on a paranoia, I suppose, that people have that these, that these technocrats and very, you know, um, you know, special people, uh, in the ivory tower in Washington are kind of pulling the strings. And so it, it has that conspiratorial background to it. But if you look at the, um, the characters that are sort of more, you know, heading IDW or right, like um, Eric Weinstein or James Lindsay or Jordan Peterson, or there's a long, long list of them. Um, you're right. They, they do tend to have a rightward bias, but you know, the fact remains is that these are the ones who are really actively working to 
sort of so fear, uncertainty, and doubt to to steal Eric Weinstein's uh, one of his famous acronyms. Except he was, of course, he was using it to describe what the authorities do, whereas I think that's what they do. And uh, you, you just seem to see more of it coming from the the right at the moment. Well, there is an irony which I think maybe you've noted, but but it, I didn't I didn't pick up on it until fairly recently, which is that. Certainly the, the peop the IDW people are dead set against, uh, postmodernism. But one feature of postmodernism is a kind of a, a suspicion of, uh, authoritative sources of knowledge. And, and I think I personally have a reasonably cynical view of, of human nature. And I believe that, yeah, people, it's not like we're all trying to be dishonest, but, but we, we tend to present versions of reality that are not objective and that often uh, accord suspiciously with our self-interest, again, whether we're aware of it or not. So I I, 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 I am kind of duly uh, skeptical of, in a way, sources of information um, generally. But, but, but the funny thing is that that particular aspect of postmodernism, which some of these people are so critical of, they evince in spades, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I mean, uh, you know, Brett and Eric Weinstein certainly – uh, hmm. and it's just a funny thing. And, and I don't know exactly what to say about it because in, in realms that matter to me, like foreign policy, I actually think it's important that people, uh, question some conventional sources of authority, the, 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 the depictions of other parts of the world that you get. Like right now, I would say depictions of, well, whatever our enemy is, right? Like I would say question depictions of China and Chinese motivation that you see in, American media. It's probably a healthy, uh, you know, counterbalance. So anyway, I am personally ambivalent about how critical to be of people who counsel skepticism, but there certainly is this irony with like the Weinsteins about them evincing sometimes the very thing that they seem, that seems to be at the heart of their uh, criticisms, you know. So one thing I'd say to that, Bob, and I, I think Matt would completely agree with this, is that the what we don't want to argue against is any skepticism of the mainstream establishment or institutions. Like in, in actual fact, it often gets lost in the shuffle, but both Matt and I have been advocates for uh, like methodological reform in, you know, the kind of the thing which follows from the replication crisis, but which, which is always in psychology, been an issue. which is for people who haven't followed it, it's just that it turned out that a lot of, uh, psychological results that were repeated endlessly in the media and other places, uh, rested on a shaky foundation. Nobody had bothered to replicate the experiment and, or they replicated it and found that they didn't get the same result and nobody was interested in publishing that or whatever. But for whatever mm-hmm. reason, psychology has this kind of so-called replication crisis. And, uh, uh, and, and that's what you're talking about. Yeah. But not just psychology across like all social sciences and also more concerningly across including medical fields, mm-hmm. um, uh, mm-hmm. which includes things like drug companies, not pre-registering studies and selecting specific outcomes. So I, I, I always, and I teach courses that like try to emphasize this about being skeptical about research literature, how to read research literature critically, how not to take academics at their word at what they're, 
you know, promoting, especially if they're, it's their particular theory, which they happen to be finding constantly positive results for. That can be because your theory is very good or it can be because you're very committed to your theory. But like, say, for example, your recent guest, John Horgan, um, mm-hmm. who is famously skeptical of scientists, right? And, and critical of a lot of the claims that they would make to authority. And I think he often has legitimate kind of quite well-founded criticisms about scientists overreaching their, their, the evidence base, right? To make bigger mm-hmm. claims. But he, he has this, and I think this is a tendency which is reflected across people who evince that kind of attitude and also amongst in foreign policy terms, the people who might be more skeptical of, uh, like neoliberal institutions or mainstream media narratives that they don't, what they tend to do is compartmentalize their skepticism and then evince a kind of credulity or, uh, or partisan credulity towards alternative sources or, or critical knowledge, uh, you know, people who are critical. So people like Matt Taibbi can be very critical of the American media establishment and then will be very kind of sympathetic towards, say, Brett Weinstein's claims about being, you know, silenced for ivermectin promotion. Mm -hmm. And they don't, I take issue with the kind of applying your skepticism unevenly and to, in many respects, Maybe Matt Taibbi is slightly different in this than like a Brett Weinstein, but they're what they're counseling as like healthy skepticism. It doesn't look like that. It looks like reactionary, uh, reactionary skepticism that is often rolls along political lines. And it's that which I have an issue with. Like people like Stuart Ritchie, Ben Goldick, or even John Horgan on his better moments, um, <laughs> uh, are people that I see a lot of value to, but what like I don't see value to is like why they would be like in John Horgan's case, so sympathetic to Rupert Sheldrake, right. Or that kind of thing. So hmm. it's the uneven application of skepticism that I take issue with. Okay. Um. Yeah. The, uh, there's a lot there. I, ke- I keep wanting to get to the Weinsteins and I'm determined to do it, but, but this leads me to want to <laughs> say one thing about Scott Adams. It was an example where I thought, uh, Maybe you were in one place a little harder on him than you might have been if he was uh from the left, but you'll probably uh correct me and argue otherwise. And and the point but it speaks to the scientific authority point. Now you, you did convince me that he's an extremely annoying person. And that was really valuable. I had never paid any attention to Scott Adams. You know, I knew he was this Dilbert guy who um wound up as a Trump supporter, and I always thought it was interesting. In a way, it makes sense, right? Because I think I, I didn't read much Dilbert, but I gather it was like about what, how horrible the plight of the working person was in America in a certain sense, right? Like the workplace mm. is this horrible, oppressive place. So in a way, it makes sense that, that he would, uh, go along with Trump and yearning for the America of yore when I don't know what the, what the romantic myth is about how great work used to be. But anyway, before China stole all the good jobs, whatever, whatever. Anyway, that, that's a tangent. The, th- the, the point I want to focus on is, uh, where 
Scott Adams says something that I think is strictly speaking true, and you were very critical of. It was like, okay, trust the science is one thing, but don't trust the scientists. I think there is an important distinction there. I trust that science in the long run uh does tend to move toward truth, uh, perhaps less erratically in when it studies less complex systems like not human beings, like physical, you know, just physics or something. But but I think in in all of these realms over time uh it's a process that moves in the direction of truth. And in that sense, I uh, trust it and I trust, uh, you know, whenever there seem to be valid scientific findings, I trust them. That's not the same thing as saying you should always trust the scientists. I mean, some, sometimes that's manifestly impossible because they disagree with one another. Uh, and and there is also this thing of scientists hiding behind the cloak of science. Uh, like, I think Tony Fauci said something like, if you doubt me, you're doubting science. And And I don't know that sounds a little like something uh that a, a figure uh invoking religious authority might say you know and and um so i i thought now granted where where scott adams went with that point it, he he was he was clearly uh trying to to get his audience to not take seriously some things that should be taken seriously and to get them to just discount uh, you know, the, the testimony of everyone but him and people he approves of. I grant you that. But I thought, I thought you could have granted more, uh, validity to the generic distinction he was making. Yeah. Look, if you take that particular statement in isolation, then it's totally anodyne and agree a hundred percent. Right. It's, it's in fact, it's, it's not even the slightest bit controversial. The whole premise of, like a scientific community is that individual scientists are just, you know, um, very flawed human beings, just as flawed as everyone else and in love with their own theories and making all kinds of mistakes. Right. And the, the whole concept of it is that you average out with, with the whole and through competition, like healthy competition between scientists, they're always trying to prove each other wrong and push their own sort of theory and so on. Then the, the truth will out. So if you take it in isolation, um, you're absolutely right, Bob. But as you kind of hinted at, he doesn't mean it like that. When, when he says, I don't trust, I trust science, I don't trust scientists, he means he trusts what, whatever version of science he, he wants to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's using it as a rhetorical tool, really. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, you can listen to that episode or better yet, listen to the original. The Scott Adams thing, and I think you'd agree on that. No, no listen, it's a good that. episode. I, I recommend people listen to it. It, it, it. It's great when you bring these people to life that I haven't paid much attention to. I mean, for example, for uh, this is embarrassing, but for 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 there was a time when I I think I kind of thought that James Lindsay and Douglas Murray were the same person. <laughs> In other words, yeah. like yeah. I would just see the name and they said I'm this not- anti woke thing. The names are both these kind of Anglo names and I'd never heard either of them. And I was kind of, uh, but, but then, you know, now it's easy. Okay. Douglas Murray has a British accent, uh, among other, among other differences. But so that's about, I, I don't, uh, and the Scott Adams but, thing was fascinating. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things to add to that too, though, which is that, you know, every conspiracy theorist says that they believe in science. Yeah. Every anti vaxxer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. says that oh, they're not anti-vax, not. right? They just have some particular problems with this particular 
vaccine, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, and the Brett once in Heather Hanging are the airbenders of this just purely amazing um, in the way they, they run that. So, you know, you have to be uh, very sceptical of their rhetorical techniques. Um, you know, and as for people like Fauci, I mean, the first thing to keep in mind, of course, is that like health authorities, yeah, and government spokespeople and people responsible for um, communicating health directives to the public are is not the scientific consensus, right? right? That's a separate thing with its own problems and its own issues and its right. own challenges. Right. For instance, in Australia, we've had recently the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine both available. There were some, you know, very small statistically rare issues with the AstraZeneca vaccine. There was confused messaging from politicians and health authorities about it. As a result, everyone sort of panicked and confused. And now everyone was for a long time, it, it, it delayed the uptake of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So you can see that there are, there are things which are, um, there, there are unique problems to public advisories and facing a public spokesperson, which can sort of, if you like, force them to, you know, use language which has a level of certainty to it that you wouldn't normally find in the scientific literature. So I'm a little bit less, and, you know, and Fauci is representing the mainstream scientific position, like 90% of the time we're talking, we're talking um, you know, some edge cases here. So, okay. um, yeah. So let's talk a little about the Weinsteins. Now, first of all, Matt, you, you have studied addiction uh, in your psychological work. And I'm wondering, do you think Chris's relationship to the Weinsteins is one of addiction? <laughs> Diagnose me, Matt. What's my issues? But let's just say Chris is. Uh, look, I have myself. This is, this is great. This is an opportunity. I have been accused Let of having an, an unhealthy uh, fascination with the Weinsteins. I had to defend myself in the kind of the paywalled part of my Friday uh, podcast with my uh, Trumpist frenemy, Mickey Kaus. Um, and so I, I, you know, because somebody accused me of being obsessed with them, I, I made the case for being deeply fascinated by them. But anyway, Matt, uh, do you do you think Chris, um, somebody should stage an intervention? <laughs> yeah, so Chris, Chris is routinely accused of being obsessed on on Twitter um, with, with with some good reason. Um, you know, it's it's true that uh, Chris uh, does have a lot more energy and a lot more tolerance and willingness to consume this material and um, be irritated by it than than a normal person. And uh, I think he I think he he actually thrives on this dark energy. It, it makes him stronger somehow. <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, um, so, you know, and Chris is critical. Um, and, and, but, you know, he's also quite quick to praise as well. Uh, it's just unfortunately that you have some characters that really aren't worthy of much praise at all. Yeah. I I, can, Bob. Yeah. If I can... If I can defend do, yourself, defend I'm myself. not sure. I'll have to ask Matt. <laughs> yeah, Matt the, is, I, he, is he allowed to defend himself? Yeah, I give permission. Yes. <laughs> they accused me speak. Uh, but like, I, I perfectly cop to that the Weinsteins are like a personal fascination for me at the minute. But it's part of it is, you know, I've heard your discussions with Mickey, and I think you get, you pointed out a lot of things about them which make them kind of fascinating characters. Uh, from claiming that they have, you know, grand theories that will revolutionize biology or physics to the the way that they are at the center of so many of the 
conspiracy theories that they they weave. It's kind of it's interesting in that respect. But I will say that like I I have an old blog which people could hunt out if they were so motivated to do. And what you will find if you go and look at that blog is that I'm listening to material from Psy advocates and like 9-11 troopers, mm-hmm. their material. And then mm-hmm. I'm writing a blog kind of critical about it. So I've been doing this to myself for like long before the Weinsteins were uh, on the scene. And I, I, if they move on to greener pastures, there'll be other people that do this. But for me, what's interesting most about those brothers and Heller, uh, Brett's wife, is that they, they epitomize the kind, the science or the secular guru set because they, what they tend to do is make appeals to having alternative scientific theories or alternatively that they were what I've called science hipsters, that they believe the mainstream position, but they do it for reasons that you wouldn't have heard of, right? The Brett believes in global warming, but not because of the IPCC reports and all of the converging evidence, but the YAML creators and, and so on. So the, there's that. I find that fascinating at the start because it's kind of a new breed to me of conspiracy theory. So in long-term interest, this was just like a, you know, a new shiny box to unwrap. But since I've started paying more attention to them, I've, find myself more and more like where initially I had a more positive view and, and kind of find some things quirky. I've, I've come to see a lot of them as more sinister. Um, we've mentioned this undermining of, you know, conventional sources, but okay. You know, that's just a feature of the modern media environment and alternative media. But what concerns me is that they are often very loudly and in concert with other people presenting their audience as that this is the way that you do good thinking and this is what scientific thinking is. And then they introduce people to fringe theorists and and conspiracy theories and they promote their bespoke kind of approach to things as that that is good science and i instead of them being silenced or kind of put on the main you know on the edges you've talked about this bob that you know appearing on joe rogan appearing on tucker carson being interviewed by megan kelly it that's not not having a platform and Mm -hmm. in the recent case with the you know ivermectin issue and the anti-vax kind of advocacy that they had a huge platform where the traditional anti-vax people aren't invited onto those spaces because people can identify them easily. But Brett and Heller are now doing a, a book tour, the promoted book, which includes stuff, uh, their anti-fluoridation stuff, their anti-sunscreen stuff, a little bit about their alternative evolutionary theories. But it, it, you know, Bob, you've written about evolutionary theory and they make an argument that any feature, which is, uh, complex, persistent, and costly is an adaptation, uh, which is an insane definition of how to identify an adaptation. Because it would mean that, like, say, a cultural practice like bloodletting is an adaptive thing, right? Because it survived for centuries across multiple cultures. So how could that costly thing where people actually 
you know, give blood? How could that persist if it wasn't beneficial? And it leads to uh, a worldview which is rife for naturalistic fallacy. Anyway, I've waffled on a lot there, but I, I see them doing genuine harm uh, on the Rogan. I was listening to Rogan just before I came here but with Brett and Hiller, and they advocated, it wasn't just the ivermectin stuff. They they had alternative theories about orthodontics um, and alternative... I, I yeah. yeah, I mean, look, so, I don't know. It could be true. What, what was interesting to me about that, it was so classic Brett in that first. So, so the idea is, uh, um, there's something fundamentally wrong about how orthodontic practice is done or, uh, or whatever the adjectival form of, I'm not even sure I know the adjective or the noun that I need here anyway. We, we all know who orthodontists are. Uh, the, the idea is that the thing that they do, uh, needs to be informed by evolutionary theory. They're doing it in a confused way. But what was interesting to me was that, did you catch the part about where Brett, uh, his teeth were messed up, he thinks, by a bad orthodontist who didn't, you know, know his evolutionary theory or whatever, and was doing the the, the practical thing. It's just interesting how often with both brothers, and, and, and again, I look, he could be right about this problem with the practice. I have no idea. It's just interesting how often the alternative theories they're propounding are rooted in a personal sense of having suffered harm by virtue of the mainstream theory. This is something they both have in common and, and it gets, it gets to, you know, back to this irony you alluded to, which is that they both complain about how the establishment has at various times in their career you know, exercise the levers of power to oppress them or their thought or something, uh, rather than let them, you know, really uh, get out there and test their ideas in the, in the free range of like idea testing. And now if you look at what both of them are doing, both Brett and Eric, uh, Brett has this theory of physics and now credible people, you, you and I both had Tim Nguyen on, on our shows, a credible, you know, guy who has a systematic critique of it. Uh, and Eric will not talk to him or any other qualified, uh, critics. Instead, he just goes on the power podcasts that he has access to and, and repeats it. And then, um, uh, Brett is doing a comparable thing. And, and again, I think ivermectin, it could turn out to be of some therapeutic or prophylactic value. I haven't, having looked at the evidence, I haven't ruled that out. That's possible. But the fact is that Brett has said, uh, flatly untrue and irresponsible things about it. In some cases, he's finally admitted it. He, he finally admitted that he was, uh, he, he misconstrued the study that led him to say, uh, you know, ivermectin is 100, per, you know, the evidence suggests ivermectin is 100% effective or whatever. So he, he did kind of cop that plea, but still he too is refusing to engage critics who have really gone down the line and, and, and mounted these systematic cr- criticisms. And he too, is just going on the power podcast, retreating to the refuge of Joe Rogan and, and, uh, and, and saying, yeah, you know, Joe, uh, it could, it's only one case, but maybe the fact that you recovered from COVID is vindication of ivermectin. Well, give me a break. I mean, Joe Rogan took everything you can take, including a number of things that have been shown to be effective in, in treating COVID. And, uh, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but this is the exact same fallacy 
that Brett finally kind of conceded he had made with the one study because it was a study where they were using more than just ivermectin and you couldn't infer anything about ivermectin per se from the results, leaving aside other shady things about the results. So I'll stop now, but there, I just have to say, there is this deep irony about the idea, the intellectual dark web having initially defined itself as this uh, reaction to the oppressiveness of the power centers and having defined its members as these fearless seekers of the truth who want nothing other than, than the, you know, the vigorous uh, exchange of ideas. And now you've got both of these guys uh, refusing to engage their critics and, and retreating to what is increasingly the new, the new form of power, you know, which they actually have access to the, the, some of these, uh, these influential podcasts. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll stop now. I There's, doubt I'm going to get a lot of blowback from either of you guys on this, but <laughs> that's it. You're just on your line. Don't dare you besmirch the good reputation, Paul. But <laughs> no, but Matt, I think will have some points to make about the, the centrality of personal grievance narratives because this, this kind of tendency to present yourself as central and treated unfairly is, is like it, it really, really common. But I, I want to say though, the point you made, Bob, about, you know, mistaking correlation for causation, right? Which is essentially what happened in the Joe Rogan case. It's also mistaking the fact that like most people get better from COVID just by, you know, just time. The vast majority of people just recover. So you could do nothing. And in most cases, you'll be fine. I'm not advocating that people do that. I just mean statistically that that is the likelihood. So we don't even know that any of the things that Joe Rogan did, you know, were helpful. And it could, uh, but it, but it, but they could have been or could not be. But in the case of ivermectin, it like, I think you can completely forget about ivermectin and just think about general standards of clinical evidence. And there's a, there's a hierarchy of evidence and the really, really common uh, pattern is like promising results in in vitro studies, positive results in low quality small studies conducted by advocates, mixed results starting to appear with bigger studies, then high quality randomized control studies pre-registered if possible, all results go away. None. And that's vast majority of clinical trials, not even just, you know, these controversial ones which pick up in the culture war. So when people see the results from one and two, like promising in vitro studies and some positive results from low quality studies. It's the the standard response should not be we need to put all our money into that because clinicians have seen this hundreds and hundreds of times. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think the reaction of skepticism is a normal one. It isn't just about political partisanship. But that that kind of mistake, like when it came to the promotion of this the mu technique or this is the the alternative orthodontic uh, method, right, to improve your jawline. There was a point in that interview with Joe where Heller and Brett say, in essence, that he's got this alternative method that involves, you know, you doing these exercises with your jaw and eating these kind of things. And, it, and then they say, and if you look at his website, or, you know, he has these before and after photos. And it's, it's shocking, the difference, and how people can deny that. And then... Joe responds by saying, and the establishment, like, how can they see these photos and just ignore the proof, right? Mm -hmm. And I was listening to, like, wanting to scratch my ears out because I was like, how can people not know, you know, the basic standards of scientific, if that's your standard, every single, you know, uh, like, 
claimed by some alternative health guru. They all have that testimonials, images showing I took these pills and, you know, before and after. Alex mm-hmm. Jones does it, but they don't seem immune to it. So it, it's that thing where <laughs> there are plenty of people who fall for that kind of thing. And it's, in some ways, it, you know, it, it's designed to hijack the way that our intuitive systems work. But what usually doesn't happen is that people then spend a good hour or so patting themselves back for their ability to think scientifically and to say, you know, that they're teaching their audience how to appropriate, how to appropriately assess these topics. And anyway, my, I, I went on. So, uh, the, the please, uh, but in, don't allow me to dominate. I, I will butt in if that's all right, Bob, and pick up sure. a couple of those other points that you mentioned. I mean, you've hinted at it, that kind of epistemic horseshoe thing that's going on, or the irony of the IDW types who um, position themselves as being, you know, you know, um, very reasonable, open to evidence, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, perhaps like you, my original concern was more with the postmodern stuff, which some, some of it and the critical theory stuff, some of it is laden with jargon and buzzwords and so on. And can some of the papers can read something like a conspiracy theory because it's like cherry picking bunches of, you know, relatively disconnected things and building up a narrative and a, seeing things through a particular lens. But I mean, I think we've already covered it, but it's just clear at this point that unfortunately a lot of these characters who who say that they're doing science are actually doing just scientism you know it's just a it's just a thin veneer for for conspiracy theories and just armchair speculation and also where what they call critical thinking like in the scott adams mold is 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 really yeah very selective critical theory again just like a conspiracy theorist that's what they do they will you know conspiracy theorists will happily um pour through the details of the rubble of the 911 or whatever and 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 not use those faculties uh, elsewhere but the other thing you mentioned was about the that personal narrative of grievance which mm-hmm. which is just a feature of the Weinsteins but also many of these figures they almost always set themselves up as being beset by all sides and not being recognized for the talents by the disc, the distributed idea suppression complex or something similar, um, basically pushing them down and not letting them shine. And then actually, as you said, taking these personal incidents in their own lives. And it's just, it's a weird coincidence that all of their grand theories seem to be an extrapolation from, from this one case that happened to them. So look, this obviously not only betrays poor reasoning skills, because <laughs> you do not draw such general conclusions from from a single case. But it also betrays this other theme we see in our gurus, which is just this underlying current of narcissism. It's a mile wide. I mean, there's no nice way to say it, unfortunately. But I, it makes sense when you think about it, because you need a certain degree of 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 self-belief and confidence, even to, you know, speak publicly like the three of us are doing now. Right. So no, you know, everyone's on this spectrum, but, but these people go further and present themselves as a, a unique source of knowledge. Somebody who sees further and deeper 
than anyone else and as polymaths. So that takes a certain level of narcissism to be able to uh, take that big step. And the final thing I'll say is that 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 grievance narrative, the narrative of suppression and so on, um, is very convenient because the problem that gurus tend to have is that their their grand claims as to their powers contrast remarkably with their relative lack of accomplishment in, in the real world, right? So I think at some level they realise this, so they it's quite convenient to have a backstory that explains why Eric Weinstein, for instance, has not revolutionised the field of physics, right? There's, there's or, or economics, which he says he's also he would also have done if properly recognised. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so you know, um, yeah, like I mean, I it, could say more, well, Chris. Yeah. Well, I, I, at the same time, I mean, I do. As you, you hinted at this, I do recognize. I mean, I, I think they're 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 demonstrating tendencies that are that are part of human nature and demonstrating them in some cases in amplified form. I recognize a lot of myself in them. I have my grievances, you know. <laughs> Who among us does not think that we should be like, you know, that we deserve more credit for something or other, right? And and, it, and it's very easy to focus on a single instance of that and let that start to, uh, and, you know, build from that experience into some kind of larger, uh, you know, theory of the world or something. Um, I, I agree that, uh, I, I think Eric in particular is an extreme case. Do you agree with me that he's, more extreme than Brett in a way. Uh, I, I mean, you use the word narcissism. I wouldn't use that as, as, uh, I would not necessarily use that about Brett. Uh, Eric, eh, I'm tempted, but, uh, I, I would say that in terms of like obvious self aggrandizement, Eric yeah. is, Eric is top, right? Like he's, he's obviously in, but Brett's, Brett's narcissism is more this might sound like a uh contradiction in terms but it's more like stealth narcissism or at narcissism which when you're next to eric you look modest if if like trump was next to eric they might you know they might have a battle but apart from him i'm not sure anybody whose comparison point is eric it will come out looking you know uh like they're self-aggrandizing. But when you take Brett in isolation and listen to the content, like Stuart Ritchie recently reviewed their book for The Guardian. It'll come out in a week and I've read it. It's a very nice review. And his, a Brett, one a of Brett his points, and Heather's book? Yes. Uh, it's a, a new, a new book. book called, what is it? A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century or something? 21st Century. Yeah. Yes. And, and Stuart Ritchie is of, of note for anybody who doesn't know who's somebody who wrote a book called, uh, science fictions and um, which is a book detailing all of the issues with the modern scientific, uh, environment, right? Uh, the, including research methods, but also how public journals work and so on. So he's not somebody who's naively rah-rah about, you know, modern science. But one of the factors that he emphasized about that book is that it just comes across as like extremely arrogant and that the the continuing theme is this presentation of themselves as people who have seen beyond 
the you know the partisan and the limitations of the the modern science and and they see things on the horizon and you don't even have to read into it because as you've played clips and so have we they say that they say you know there's nothing more pleasurable to me than looking around and thinking everyone else is wrong and I'm so far ahead they can't even see it and that's not me doing a parody that's almost word for word what Brett said not Eric and well, Brett, like, said, yes. Brett said to Eric, this is something we have in common. When everybody says you're full of shit, we, we take that as positive reinforcement. He almost, maybe, maybe what I just said is a slight caricature, but he almost said that. No, he, yeah, he, he did. did yeah. And he, he, he said more along those lines that were not, because there's not just a case of like being willing to forge your own path and stand up. Like there's good reasons to do that sometimes when there's, you know, the people in the replication crisis, we were saying that the power opposing literature was uh, like biased and bad. We're initially in a minority and, you know, we're heavily criticized as data terrorists and all these kind of things. But there's, so it isn't an issue about believing in yourself. Uh, it's more in this kind of self, this kind of self-satisfied and a heuristic that if other people think that you're wrong, that 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 is an indication that it's not that you should go and check, like, am I actually right? Right. And then you you do the research and you say, well, no, I, I think I'm I'm still right. They don't get self-doubt from that. They get vindication that like they are more correct the more that people disagree with them. Mm-hmm. And that just that heuristic, if you apply it means that you simply can't be wrong. You can only be vindicated or not yet vindicated. That's the only two options. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's tough because, you know, I, I, I do. There, there are things, you know, they emphasize. I mean, like Brett, this one thing he says, uh, I think is worth remembering. Uh, you alluded to it, that, you know, a lot of these big studies are financed by pharmaceutical companies. And if you have a generic drug that nobody can make money off of, it's hard to get somebody to do one of these huge randomized trials. Nobody wants it's not in anybody's interest to pay for it. So so like that's an example of a good point he makes. I try to keep an open mind uh, on this stuff. Like I said, I haven't totally shut the door on uh ivermectin. It's, it's just that, I mean, as you suggest, he carries and it's it's really kind of surprising I, with Brett, like there was one point where he was talking to his fellow believers and he said, okay, so on ivermectin, we're done, right? It's, 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 there's just no doubt anymore. It's like, it's, we're solid, right? And, and, uh, no point in even disputing it anymore. And, and it's like, don't you understand that a scientist is just supposed to never talk like that, right? It's like, it's like nothing is, you know, strictly speaking, nothing is ever proved in science. It's just it hasn't been disconfirmed, and some theories get to a point where they merit tremendous confidence. But you, you just shouldn't talk like that. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't understand it. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, like, um, as you say, Bob, it's not that there isn't a sprinkling of fair points in. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, we're using Brett and Heather as an example here, but amongst all of them, there's a, there's kernels of truth. In, in pretty much it, the, the problem is what what they do with it they they kind of use those as as a springboard for a bunch of quite insane things and you know and th- that's why we're interested in them because you know most people out there um like the audience of these of these gurus are not sort of um tinfoil hat 
crazy people generally. They're generally people who are curious, who are skeptical, who are interested, who, 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 yeah, you know, want to, um, the, you know, seekers perhaps. Um, but not, there's nothing wrong with their fans, uh, I think, you know, to a large degree. But what, so Chris, why Chris we're particularly looks like he sensitive has to them about that? Well, okay, <laughs> some of their fans, I mean, the super feds, there are problems, yeah. but I'm, I'm talking the, the quiet ones, the, yeah. the, the, the broader group. Um, so, but that does make them particularly pernicious because they're not, they're very good at what they do. Um, I've made the analogy of, um, the fellow who played the president in the West Wing, who, you know, um, um, I don't remember the actor's name. Martin, uh, Martin Sheen. Oh, oh, Martin Sheen. Yeah. Now, now he's more presidential than any real president, right? Yeah. He, he, he's, he does, he's an actor. He's a good actor. He does a great job of portraying a president because. He set his mind to do that. And what we see with people like Eric, I'm sorry, Brett and Heather, is they've set their minds to play the role of the scientist and they're good at it. And unless you really devote a lot of effort and have your antennas tuned to the, the, the problems with what they're doing, then it's quite easy to fall for them. So it's, it's quite worrying. Yeah, I feel more charitably well, toward Brett than than Eric, but that, that's that's uh, maybe just me. What were you going to say, Chris? I just wanted to, before I forget, mention that the like in the case of ivermectin, I've heard that about you know drug companies won't be able to profit and stuff. But I would just note that ivermectin, the actual brand, I believe, is owned by Merck, and most of the like U.S. there are generics, but the people who make generics are also drug companies. And so there's plenty, you know, if there was something that was like super effective, you can, drug companies would be profiting off it. They would make their own brands or they, they own the brand. So I don't believe that the, most of the people making that claim have done the work to check, you know, what the incentive structure is with profits. And that aside, it, it kind of, what Matt said about them being good at playing the role of scientists. I would extend that to their ability to add disclaimers and uh, what what we've tended to name strategic disclaimers. And I like I now consider myself a connoisseur of this genre because I hear it so much. And you will hear like Brett and Heller found this document about uh PCR tests, right? And that they thought that this document revealed a conspiracy where they were having more stringent mm-hmm. standards for identifying COVID amongst uh, the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. So there would be more cases amongst the vaccinated, right? And this was, you know, it was in America. So CDC or WHO, I can't remember, I think CDC policy. And, and they based it on this reading of like a PDF document that they got. I said, seen that document, read it. It took like, you know, five minutes to read. And the reading of it to me was immediately clear that it was not talking about like the criteria for making the test. It was the criteria for sending samples to the mm. CDC in order to like validate the strain of coronavirus or whatever. So they needed a certain level of concentration in order for it to be worthwhile to send to them. Right. So, but that was my reading of it, but I'm not an expert in that. So what I did was. I spent like maybe an hour, but I sent some messages to people I know who are 
experts in that and said, is my reading of this right? Like, is this what I think it is? They checked it and said, you know, yes, it is a couple of different people. Mm. And then I made a thread about it. And Brett and Heller, you can say to their credit, next week came out when this was pointed out to them and said, we we made a mistake. But the way that they admitted they made a mistake was to say, to make a big deal out of that, okay, they need to correct one thing that they misspoke. But but then they said, oh, but, you know, the other thing is that these, since we talked about this document, it's now been the address that you click doesn't go to it. So they're obviously trying to hide something. Mm, so mm. even if we weren't right about the specifics, they're still trying to hide. And so instead of getting the message that they made a a mistake which betrays a real sloppiness because they made this, they went on a kind of 15 minute rant about the, you know, the cabal that was putting their fingers on the scale. So, but their correction was short and then pivoted the high, even if they got that detail wrong, they're still right. And that to me is like, it's just what they all do. Not that the Weinsteins are really good examples of things, but they're not the only ones doing that. And it is people on the other side of the spectrum as well. And sorry, Matt. But, but uh, you know, that's one example from Chris there, a specific one to just illustrate. But it's hard to overstate the 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 links which they put those dis- strategic disclaimers to. I mean, you know, the 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 meme. You know, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. You know, like it's it's that level when when they talk about we're not doing conspiracy theories, we're exploring conspiracy hypotheses. So then they will go on and argue forcefully for their conspiracy hypothesis and then did you know, basically events like 99% certainty in it or hundred percent certainty and move on as if it is definitely true. Yeah. And it is just a, it is a rhetorical maneuver. Um, so the defenders can always say, Oh, but they, they mm. issued this caveat, they issued that disclaimer and so on. And they did, but they, they base their entire, um, the reasoning from the absolute cast iron certainty that what they have speculated to be true is in fact actually true. Yeah. And, you know, I got to say, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to, I want to say one more thing about Eric, but then, then I, we probably said enough about the Weinsteins, but I'm sure there are people out there now thinking like, man, you guys are obsessed, but I just want to say like, we're in the middle <laughs> of a pandemic that has the entire world's attention and Brett Weinstein is one of the, I mean, ivermectin aside, he of course is a vac, he's not a classic anti-vaxxer, he's not against all vaccines, but he's a skeptic of this vaccine and is arguing that there are hidden uh, side effects that uh, haven't been admitted or documented. And again, I'm agnostic, could be the case, but but uh, I think there's good evidence that he's overstated the level of concern that's appropriate. But but the main thing I want to say is like he's about the most uh, what I mean. How would I put it? If you if you put all the anti-vaxxers uh, or the vax skeptics, the skeptics of this vax on a spectrum, and, and from most manifestly crazy to those that are kind of getting serious attention, at least by people. People like Joe Rogan from people like Joe Rogan. Yeah. I mean, Brett is like Apparently right there. There's only a couple of I, people. He's a very important specimen right now in that regard. And then that aside, the whole intellectual dark web. I mean, Eric came up with the name, launched the thing and, and, and actually used, uh, Brett's, uh, kind of, uh, notoriety, fame, whatever 
from his uh, evergreen, his anti-woke evergreen episode. And that's another huge issue now is the whole the culture wars, the woke speech codes. Uh, and I, these guys just embody so much that that is of interest right now that I that I'm not that apologetic about discussing the dynamics. Um, and uh, I, yeah, go ahead, Chris. I, I just I'll, I'll very briefly say that the, I think, in some sense, uh, to, to to provide another justification, the Brett and Heller are now in a book tour to promote their their hunter gallery book right which was written i think before or like during the covid thing but it, it doesn't focus anyway on vaccines they're, they're, right. or that kind of thing but the people that are interviewing them are astutely avoiding the topic of vaccines and what they've been done and i would suspect that's at the request of publishers or brett and heller directly uh, they've talked about you know they're going to step back from focusing on that topic but i I, I mean, I'm glad that they're not going to be, you know, directly focusing on anti-vax rhetoric anymore. But I, I think the, the public sphere or do a disservice to just forget about what they did. And like Michael Shermer just interviewed them yesterday. He's, you know, getting blowback on Twitter, but what does that matter? But he, this is a leader of the skeptic movement and somebody who has, you know, published books about anti-vaccine rhetoric and that kind of thing. And he had two, as you say, of the, you know, people that are leading proponents of the dangers of this vaccine, although they have expressed concerns about other vaccines, but the, um, and, and he didn't ask them a single question. And it speaks to me about the point that you make about, you know, the, the issue of not having these, any challenging conversations with people that disagree with you yet constantly editorializing that that's what your brand is. Right. You are the one having the difficult conversations and stuff. Right. And I know you've criticized the IDW about this before, but I, I think that's part of the thing that's so galling is like, there's a, an unrepentant or a, a maybe just completely unaware level of hypocrisy that is hard to overstate in, in yeah. some of the figures. Hmm. I, I agree. Let, let me, uh, let me, so I, I say one more thing about a Weinstein and then one more, and then ask you one more general question about, about the guru biz and then maybe we can, uh, kind of move toward closure. But, uh, I have to ask this question about Eric and this does get to the dynamics of guruhood. So he, uh, you remember this tweet of his where, okay, so this was after, uh, you know, uh, Tim Nguyen credentialed, uh, mathematician and kind of, you know, uh, in a, in a way mathematical physicist had systematically critiqued his paper. You had given Tim a platform. I had given Tim a platform. Um, Eric had found grounds for dismissing all this, refused to engage in, in, uh, debate. And then Eric came out with this tweet where this kind of melodramatic tweet where he was, Saying, okay, basically, you know, I'm gonna, it, it was, it barely was even subtext that he was threatening legal action and, and, and almost guaranteeing that it was gonna happen. And then at the end, you know, it was like to his followers, wish me luck, wish me well. I'm about to go into this battle, right? And I think any of us 
certainly you guys had reason to wonder whether we were going to wind up in court, right? I mean, I didn't think that so much about me. I figured, well, it's, it's you know, maybe Tim and his cohorts that Eric feels so oppressed by. Maybe you guys. But, but it was, it was very much, it was, it was, it was a threat. It, it, it was, it, yeah, it, and, and, yeah, and, and it, it doesn't and, happen. And at the same t- I mean, maybe it will, no. but what happened to that? That was a while ago. Yeah. And the, the one thing you didn't mention is that in, he had found some comment from somewhere. I forget what it was. It was like a off, uh, an off color kind of discord joke or something from some anonymous source. But in his complaint, he was claiming that his family was being threatened with mm-hmm. assault and sexual assault or something like that, and and sort of included vaguely Tim Nguyen. people, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Tim Nguyen in particular. But but even us, it was sort of tangentially. He, he name checked you guys in, in one tweet breath. or in the course of that conversation. I think he he uh, the Twitter handle of your podcast. Uh, he he deployed i believe mm. and he that matt just to mention the specific for that was that the tweet was by or the discord message was uh by dan gilbert and it was an off-color joke about eric had said something on joe rogan and then he oh, made right. a joke about oh i heard it like this so i'm going to promote on twitter now that eric uh wants to like rape children or something it was a you know it was an off-color joke but it also he didn't do it right it was a comment on a discord he was pretty clearly making a joke about taking things out of context they were doing this kind of they were doing this kind of hate watch of eric on on joe rogan you know i mean hate watch in the not you know the loose you know you know the 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 relatively benign sense of the term but but and they were doing live commentary and and i guess the guy said oh now i'm going to go out say saying that he wants eric wants to do blank Clearly Eric, meaning that this one phrase could be taken out of context. It was obvious. And yes. Eric, yeah. Eric said something about like the strange way th- that we divorce sex and children. <laughs> right. But in, but in context, right. he wasn't saying, right. You know, the, but that you could take it out and be like, Oh, Eric said it's strange that children and, you know, but, but that uh, was the guy's yeah. point that if you took this out of context, it would be so exactly. anyway. Well, the the thing I wanted I, to say, I mean, we had that guy on the podcast. That you, was what you I had wanted had to him mention. On, right, so before this, so um, anyway, the thing I wanted to say is like, uh, you might think. I mean, my first reaction to that when I saw Eric's tweet, it was so clearly saying something momentous is going to happen. I'm going to do it, folks. These guys are going to be sorry they ever messed with me. And I thought, well, you make a claim like that, seems like you're going to pay a price if you don't deliver. Like, won't your followers lose faith or something? But maybe it, I'm starting to think he's never going to deliver, A, and maybe it's part of the dynamics of guruhood that, no, you won't pay much of a price. I mean, right? Like, mm. th- is that your take is like? Well, well, this is, this is a famous cult dynamic, of course, where they make prophecies. Um, <laughs> yeah, well. And, you know, on, the, on, the, on this date, we're going to migrate to the comet or something like that. Yeah. And it doesn't happen. But it, it has a, this, the community is surprisingly resilient to these, to these diagrams. I, I realize that's a bit of a stretch of a comparison, but I think it's the same kind of dynamic that, um, you, you will not pay a price to, to, to make those claims. Yeah. I think um, if you look at Eric's like, uh, Reddit community, he has paid a price for like not starting his podcast up again. And people, he's made all of threads up with this kind of tone in the past and, and nothing. Has kind of come. He's hinted at dark forces, and that he's gonna 
you know, fight back against them soon. And I, I don't know, you know, maybe Eric is making complex legal plans about how he's going to take down all of his critics and these will be revealed. But uh, I, I think that even if that's the case, the thing that he's often responding to is, like Matt said, he kind of conflates everything, you know, some negative comment or things that he's seen on the Discord or that some anonymous person said, and like the paper critique that Tim Nguyen had made or our podcast, and he kind of puts them all together and, and you know, implies that there's some dark, sinister forces behind it that, 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 and that they're all engaged in these kind of, you know, misogynistic or they, you know, attacking, they or at least are willing to support people that will attack his family. And, like, it's not hard for us to say, and I, I said it when he made that thread, like, we don't support anybody that would, you know, harass Eric personally or his, mm-hmm. his family. No, the, you know, there's there's pe- lots of people say stupid stuff on Twitter, but, like, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's still not okay. But that's not what, like, Tim Nguyen's critique is. That's no. not what we're no. doing. And it, it's just, it is strange when you see yourself kind of being lumped in together and, and implications of legal threats. And it's clearly done with the view to, I don't know if it's conscious or not, but it, it certainly has the effect of making people second guess public criticisms, right? Not Matt. It does make me, I, I am I'm more worried about these things. And Matt's like, no, just, you know, it, it, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm probably too blase, but, you know, it is a common dynamic. Like it's, you know, the the Scientologists are suing everybody left, right and center and, and cults in general very much want to build up the sense that they are under attack by nefarious forces to, to, to sort of build that community and bind them together. And I think it was pretty transparent that um, Eric was hoping he would foster a kind of groundswell of, uh, you know, activity from his followers to to leap into the fray and fight the good fight um, on this very important issue. Of him, of, uh, but um, that didn't seem to materialize. Yeah, so that, that word followers, that leads to maybe, let me back up and ask a generic question and then we can call it a day. But back to this question of whether, like, what is new here? Like, you know, on the one hand, when I when I listen to the people um, that that you you kind of focus on in your podcast, you know, often I can think, well, uh, like like sometimes you'll be focusing on uh, even with Scott Adams, kind of, although he's a very eccentric character uh, and doesn't deserve to be compared to any like serious columnist of the past or anything. But you know, it's political. He's making arguments about politics, right? It's, it's political argument. And, 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 uh, we don't generally think of that as inherently being, uh, uh, you know, kind of a guru activity. Um, and, uh, you know, with, with various, I mean, I mean, there are various people analogs to the various people you talk about from, from the past whom I, I, you know, I, I might say, well, we didn't used to call them gurus. What's going on here? And, and one thing I wondered is, is one thing that's new this idea of the follower. Now, people have always had followers maybe in some sense, but social media has made it this quantifiable thing, and it's put put people, I mean, even like, you know, just academics, 
very much in touch with a kind of a fan base um and 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 put them in touch with like what kinds of things excite their fans and get them positive feedback and so on uh so i guess i guess i don't know the question is partly to to what extent is whatever you see about this that's new a product of uh of technologies that give new meaning to the term followers make that a, a much more a tangible uh thing that you're much more in touch with we we didn't we didn't used to use the word the way we use it now right yeah i i think you're you're definitely on to something there like a lot has been talked about and i've experienced it myself where when you listen to podcasts right you feel intimately connected to the the hosts and i remember years and years ago when i listened to skeptics guide to the universe one of the hosts died uh um i and I hadn't been aware that I had built, uh, you know, a, a psychological connection. I liked them, but, you know, just as podcasts, but I remember when he died feeling, you know, actually emotionally hit by it. And it kind of surprised me like, oh, wow, I, this guy has never met me, knows nothing about me, but I felt a connection. Right. And, and that's one of the, it's, it can be a perfectly harmless or a neutral thing or, but it, this one way kind of psychological connection that people build and, and podcasts are good at it, but you can do it through any medium where there's a connection. You know, it can be YouTube, could be whatever that I don't think you got through written text before. That's one thing is mm -hmm. that, you know, the new technologies, audio and visual, that makes a difference. But the, the other thing is that. Like with web 2.0 and the establishment of, you know, all these like micro communities that everyone, every, not everyone, but like, especially podcasters and whatnot tend to have, you know, Patreons, their own discord servers or so on. YouTubers have them as well that it does, it does run the risk of cultivating a kind of cult of personality dynamic. And I think that people have to, as they're, like level of fame increases or whatever or or if they're already very famous they have to be aware of that dynamics not just how it affects their followers but how it affects them and bob our last conversation which we had on our podcast there was something that really stuck out to me right and you've mentioned you know how are you that you share some of the characteristics about you know the, the sense of grievance that we all have about our brilliance being on unrecognized in our time you you're still you're doing all right but uh, the the you talked about having the opportunity when you were doing some meditation course uh with someone to they uh teacher got sick and you had the possibility mm. to record mm -hmm. the guided meta meditations right i think mm -hmm. or no sorry teacher was a specialist in meta the guided meditations and that it gave you pause and that you ended up not doing it because you didn't feel right about it right for whatever reason whether you didn't feel qualified or you you know had some uneasy feelings about it you you just you didn't do it now in contrast to that i think that impulse that you had is something that lots of public intellectuals would lack i'm not saying they're all going to teach meditation but this hesitation about is this something you know that i should do that could lead to uh, you know, an attachment with my followers. And in contrast, I will say for various reasons related to our show, 
we've been doing Sam Harris's uh, Waking Up app, right? Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, I'll I will praise it by saying it's quite a good app for giving you a daily meditation practice. You know, a reminder. The instructions are good. Sam has a a, a very soothing voice. But that's also the comment that I would make that like, it didn't need to be Sam's voice for this app, right? It could be a, a voice actor and they, the content could be exactly the same. But part of the selling point of it is that it is Sam. Sam is like your personal meditation mm-hmm. teacher. And I think he doesn't grapple enough and not just him, but many of the people in the set with the fact that that kind of thing it doesn't just build up an intellectual following. It's building an intimate psychological following, which which can be then completed with your political takes. And and I right. guess all of that is are things that I'm concerned about in the modern environment that didn't exist when you're just reading someone's column in the New York Times, right? Maybe you go to see their their talk, but you don't have right. the same connection. Yeah, I, I debated Sam in Los Angeles, I don't know how many years ago now, 10, 12. And I mean, when he walked out there, you know, it was the same friendly audience. It was some, it was some convention of atheists or something. It was, it was the same friendly audience. But I mean, when he walked out there, it was like a rock star had walked out there. I mean, the, the, it, it was not, it, That's you like me at conferences, Bob. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I well, I, this is a whole nother conversation about, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't begrudge him. I mean, you know, if you believe in your ideas, uh, maybe you shouldn't worry about building up capital in one realm and then, and then translating that into people taking your political ideas seriously, something I don't know, but, but you're right. It's a difference. I mean, he's, he's got the instinct, uh, for sure. Uh, mm. were you going to say something, Matt? Yeah, I think, I guess I'd just say that it's important to recognize that the parasocial relationships of one kind or another are, are, are normal and commonplace. So, you know, the, the appeal of, say, you know, actors and actresses is, is, yeah. you know, the, the reason they get paid so much is because we do build up that, that thing. And, you know, politicians do do it as well, you know, from, from, from John F. Kennedy to Donald Trump. Um, and it's, maybe not necessarily healthy there what it does seem to be dangerous a little bit more has the potential for danger when you position yourself as an as a intellectual and self-help guide yeah as an epistemic center and combine that with like the that sort of socio-emotional parasocial relationship so you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Like, you know, uh, as, as you guys have been sort of hinting at, you don't do that, Bob, at least not that I can tell. Maybe you're very subtle or something. Not successfully. But, um, <laughs> not successfully. Um, and, you know, you don't have to do it. Like like an old-fashioned guru, I mean, someone who might have been a guru but sort of isn't, um, is, uh, I think, someone like Richard Dawkins. Now, I, I read all these books, right? And and this is the medium as well, right? So books do not transfer personality like a podcast or a mm-hmm. movie does. Now, I read all these books, super duper fan, certainly felt that kind of intellectual satisfaction, you know, of following someone's reasoning and being on the same page and, and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So you get that sort of... But I didn't and still don't feel the slightest bit 
of personal attachment to the guy, probably hmm. partly due to his personality, but also hmm. partly due to the fact that it was, <laughs> it was books. Um, like, I'd be more upset if Kate Blanchett or Tony Collette kind of died or something, <laughs> you know, um, uh, to, to Australian actress, actresses I like. Um, uh, it's funny. But, I was wondering the other day why you haven't done Dawkins because he did, he did enter this fray a little, right? He, he, he's, He's got a little IDW in him and, 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 you know, and, and, uh, he, he's very, you know, outspoken about the evils of religion, which is the way Sam entered the picture. And there's a certain amount of, uh, overlap and, and, and he's got, you know, uh, his, uh, his, his issues with Islam, which I would say, uh, border, uh, into, uh, Islamophobia is conventionally defined personally, but, um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's list. interesting he's that you don't list, think he he's quite qualifies. Well, um, he's, like, he's no, on he, our list. He, he, he is on, on your list. list. Okay, so you're yeah, not yeah. saying he's not a guru. You're just saying he he's not an effective one the way some of these people are. <laughs> no, not <laughs> not, not in terms of that. He, he doesn't try <laughs> to develop those parasocial as far yeah, as I yeah. can tell. So okay. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, when but I he, say he's on the list, I mean, one thing emphasizes that we, you know, don't just want to cover people that are, you know. You know, gurus. full marks on all our guru scores, right? We're, yeah. we're, we like to cover public intellectuals, influential thought leaders, however, all, all across the spectrum. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll crank up the gurometer and feed them in and see what, see what comes out. Yeah. Doc, okay. Yeah. You're going to say one. He did have a, he just, I mean, Dawkins did have a foundation like built around him, right? But it, that he, uh, I think he's in recent years become famous for his, his Twittering, which is somewhat yeah. unfortunate for, it would be much better if his legacy was his books, but, um, yeah, well, I, well, I, think I should it's just say, I, well, you yeah. know, actually, I, you know, Dawkins is just a random example. I could have named any other kind of sort of guru or public intellectual character that sort of made their name before social media and web 2.0 and all that stuff. Like, you know, what about Bertrand Russell or George Orwell or Aldous Huxley uh-huh. or, you know, there's, there's, you know, so, so many names, right. But the, the medium is important. And, um, you know, I just feel like these days we deserve a better class of public intellectual, <laughs> a better class of gurus. Um, okay. So, uh, well, well, thanks you guys. I, you know, I, I, I feel, uh, I feel a little, a little bad for having steered us into a, such a long, uh, Weinstein, uh, trek. Um, you know, especially given Chris's, that Chris is in recovery. It's like, you know, offering yeah, to, that's... just one, just, just one hit of crack, Chris. Just, just, just this will be the last hit. Um, and, and then, you know, we saw what happens is he's a, he's a mere shadow of his former self. Now, um, <laughs> the one thing though to uh, to justify again what we what we've just taken part in, you know, like a good addict, um, is is to say that like I think a point that I would want to emphasize, even when we're drilling down to you know specific instances with what the Weinstein's have done or said, is that they're like a hyper stimulus of this set that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they're not the only ones. And the patterns that you can identify through what they do, you'll see it all over the sphere. And you'll see it outside the intellectual dark web as well. You will see it in the woke spectrum. And you will see it in, you know, it, maybe closer to home, Bob, would be, you know, like Jimmy Dore types and and the anti-imperialist set or however they define themselves, Glenn Greenwald and, and so on. So 
I would just caution that, like, even if people don't like us beating up on the Weinsteins, uh, you can apply the insights to across the spectrum, and you should. That That's something I would emphasize. Okay, yeah. well, I, it would be interesting to see you do Glenn. I think he'd be challenging in a way, but... Uh, um... Uh, He's, the, part of the issue maybe with him and some of the other people is that like, you know, you mentioned about the issue of just traditional pundits mm-hmm. and Glenn in many respects actually to me comes across like that, that like I find a lot of stuff that he says objectionable and stuff, but it's more his punditry. So mm-hmm. yeah, but, yeah. but we could yeah. definitely cover him. Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't want, we don't want to pathologize like guruness, you know, right. like, like, are... like put like a clinical definition on it and put people into a box of guru or not. It's, you know, really, I mean, we focus the on spectrum. the characters to, to, to give it some sort of focus. That's right. But it's yeah. a spectrum and, you know, we're all, you know, even relatively normal people are vulnerable to doing some of these things and falling prey to some of those things. And yes, you have the, the super stimuli. Um, but you have people across the spectrum. And so really what we're hoping to do is just get people to exercise their, you know, their critical thinking and their critical literacy and, um, you know, get that, get that skepticism dialed in a bit, I guess. So it's not veering into conspiracism, but mm-hmm. is, is more at that sweet spot. I mean, yeah. And I should, just have fun. I should say there's a lot of, uh, you know, there, there are names I haven't mentioned that you've done that, that, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, Nassim Talib, uh, or Taleb, however mm-hmm. he pronounces it. Uh, so there's a full, uh, there's a ton of people. People should peruse your archives. Um, uh, and if they are interested in the Weinsteins, there's plenty of that there. Uh, and, and I've written about Eric, uh, in a piece called Is Eric Weinstein a Crackpot? You can Google that. Uh, and, um, what else do you want to say about, I mean, you know, the, the name of the podcast is Decoding the Gurus. What's it, uh, you want to give us your Twitter handles or the Twitter handle of the podcast or anything? Yeah, uh, for me personally, it's C underscore Kavna, which is my name. And then at Matt, you are for C Dent, right? The, like the Hitchhiker's yeah. character. And then the, the, character. The, the podcast is Gurus Pod. Isn't that right? That's the mm-hmm. handle You're on Twitter. Talking. Just one word. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you if you type in decoding the gurus to podcast player, yeah. you'll find our podcast. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm available on all good podcasts. Easy to find. <laughs> all right. Well. Well. Thanks a lot. Uh, we could have gone on a lot longer. Um, maybe someday we will in the future. But at least we've said the very last word. About the Weinsteins, and you'll never hear that word escape Chris's <laughs> lips again. There's nothing more to be we, said. We, we might be tempted to do the episode that they did with Joe Rogan, but but you know that's Joe Rogan, so we'll right. Be that's more of a Rogan, Rogan thing than a Weinstein thing. Yeah, Could have been yeah, anybody. That's... Could have been any guest. <laughs> you chose the episode right. randomly because you're interested in Joe Rogan. I know how that works. If sure. Bre- if Fred and Heather happened to be there. Then that's, sure. that's the way yeah, the cookie that's, crumbles. That's, yeah. 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 No, I know. I know how that works. Okay. Well, I, I look forward to that one too. All right. Thanks a lot, you guys. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. It's great.